From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. There are nuances of athletic ability that often go beyond just physical skill. In the world of sports psychology, clinicians and researchers work with athletes to assess the peaks and valleys of performance. From elite professionals to weekend warriors, there's a lot to learn from someone's flight or fight response under pressure. With an undergraduate degree in psychology and experience playing and coaching tennis in Europe, Dr. Roland Karlstedt found himself intrigued by clinical psychology. Dr. Karlstedt developed a clinical model and discovered that athletes were the perfect profile to apply to clinical practice. Roland Karlstedt is a research associate in psychology at Harvard Medical School and McLean Hospital's developmental biopsychiatry program. He is also the chair of the American Board of Sports Psychology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karlstedt. Thank you. Um, how did your experience as an athlete influence you to become a sports psychologist? Well, I had initial uh, psychology background as an undergrad, and then I ended up uh, playing professional team tennis in Europe. And I've always been sort of um, critical, skeptical, analytic-minded. And a uh, big theme uh, in sports is mental toughness, the zone, choking, not being able to play up to peak performance when under pressure. And uh, I tend to exhibit some of those frailties because I started my tennis career relatively late. So I was competing against people that had top coaching and things like that. So I felt that I was faltering and never reaching peak performance. And uh, so I sort of conceptualized a model that I eventually um, studied in my dissertation, researched in my dissertation, uh, looking into uh, psychological traits and behavioral tendencies that uh, may influence the ability to uh, not choke and uh, sort of reach that zone flow state. And so I've, I've been collecting data well before uh, getting into my formal uh, psychological doc graduate education. Mm. Um, before we go a little deeper into the work that you do, why do people see sports psychologists? My research has sort of shown that there's a, a, a type of person that tends to actually admit to having psychological frailties when they compete. And it's linked to a couple of traits that I may bring up uh, later in the podcast. And uh, I'd say 80% of uh, people who do present, even in a clinical context, uh, have a particular profile. So not everybody admits to it, but those that uh, have this profile and admit to it, they, they, they tend to present. And it's usually they, they think they're not displaying or being able to produce the technical game, so to speak, that they've developed. So that their, their ability to perform under pressure uh, when they're actually competing just doesn't correspond or it's incongruent with uh, their actual technique. And sometimes it's... it's uh, a valid perception, but sometimes people use the mental game sort of as an excuse, and they do have uh, physical, technical frailties. 
But it's usually I just, you know, you can't, uh, you're disappointed with yourself when you're trying to do your best and you know you you can produce a better, uh, better outcomes if you could just have better motor control that's not sort of influenced by uh, psychological intrusions, intru- negative intrusive thoughts and that sort of thing. Are there any other general reasons that people see sports psychologists? I'm just curious across the board. Well, in the context of, let's say, McLean Hospital and, and Harvard Medical School, um, the idea is uh, there's also a clinical component. So you do have athletes that have, um, you know, they present with diagnostic uh, disorders. Um, and interestingly, recently, uh, some studies have shown that uh, opioid use is actually, uh, you know, it's a big theme right now. It's up in athletes, which uh, maybe isn't that surprising in that uh, they do get injured, they, uh, they have pain, and, uh, but let's say 10, 15 years ago, you didn't hear about that as you would now. And then just the issue of competitive anxiety, uh, that can carry over into one's own personal life, issues re- relating to, let's say, end of career, even if you're a college athlete who's been primed to be a, a good athlete your whole life, and then you know it's not going to go further. So you can be you know, a weekend warrior after that, but it's a big transition from um, practicing and training every day uh, to reach a high level that you may never reach, and then having to decide, okay, um, you know, I, I have to really roll back now. I can't practice and train like I used to. I don't have the goals I had to do. And that can lead to, uh, you know, mild depression. Uh, so, uh, but overall, there's less um, psychopathology in athletes than, than non-athletes because it tends to be protective. It's a goal-oriented activity that, uh, you know, allows you to uh, uh, focus on, on the mind, the body, and, and you're doing doing something healthy. So there's that whole clinical realm um, that's you can sort of view independent, yet it's it's interrelated with the actual uh, performance component. Um, now, can we circle back to what is the focus of your research? Uh, my research is uh, it's very biomarker and psychophysiologically based, and as mentioned, uh, my doctoral research uh, looked at a model emanating from the realm of behavioral medicine, and it's called the high risk model of threat perception. And that goes back to a researcher uh, named Dr. Vikrama Sakara. And uh, it was intriguing because he identified three measures that um, impact health, wellness, pain perceptions, pain thresholds, even um, the tendency to not present when you have problems. So, uh, and the three traits are uh, one's called hypnotic susceptibility which has nothing to do directly with hypnosis. It's sort of a cognitive style that's related to attention and focus. And it's a very uh, positive trait if you're not high in the second detrimental trait, which is neuroticism, which is one of the big five traits. And that's, a, um, that's really a uh, negative propensity or, or trait to have. So if you're high in neuroticism, and high in hypnotic susceptibility, it's sort of a, a double whammy because you don't use your ability to focus on the task at hand. Instead, you focus on negative intrusive thoughts that are associated uh, and uh, is the hallmark of, of high neuroticism. So an athlete who's high in hypnotic susceptibility and concurrently high in neuroticism, uh, that's a major red flag. 
And then, though, there is a protective factor, which is called repressive coping. Sounds very Freudian, but it's actually um, biomarker verifiable uh, brain dynamic in which uh, left prefrontal um, strategic planning is sort of hijacked by negative intrusive thoughts at the wrong time. So if you're in a uh, critical moment and you're in a pre-action preparation phase, if you're high in hypnotic susceptibility, high in neuroticism, uh, this repressive coping trait um, is, is sort of dormant. And the negative intrusive thoughts uh, cross over, and they've actually demonstrated this uh, with EEG. If an athlete's high in hypnotic susceptibility, low in neuroticism, and high in this repressive coping, uh, that's the ideal athlete's profile because they're, they're capable of using their superior ability to focus and concentrate on the task at hand. And what repressive coping does, it, it sort of acts as a blockade and uh, negative intrusive thoughts that may be formulating, they, they do not cross over. And this has actually been shown in EEG, EEG frequency changes um, from the right frontal area into the left frontal area. And this, this block of the interhemispheric transfer of negative affect uh, is associated with the ability to, or, or it, the consequence of that is that there's a shut, shutting off or shutdown of these negative truths of thoughts that, that could come up. You rarely see anybody who's high in neuroticism being concurrently high in repressive coping. In a clinical context, it's, it predicts, um, for example, placebo proneness, nocebo proneness, um, anxiety or high sympathetic nervous system reactivity in a baseline st state. So even if you're not, even in the presence of um, no apparent stressors, individuals who are high in eroticism tend to exhibit uh, excessive hyperreactivity or, or, or excuse me, sympathetic nervous system at baseline. So it's, it's looked at in a different context in a behavioral medicine uh, uh, environment, whereas in sport performance, it's more uh, looking at it in terms of how are you going to perform as pressure goes up. One of the, the interesting things about repressive coping in a clinical context is that high repressive copers tend never to admit that they have pain, that they have symptomology, and they're very uh, reluctant ever to present voluntarily uh, to doctors. So that puts you at risk for uh, you know, coronary artery disease, mm -hmm. you have chest pain, instead of going to the doctor, you want to prove to yourself that you're not having a heart attack and you run up a flight of stairs. That's actually, mm -hmm. uh, there's case studies of people that have done that. So in a, in a clinical life context, repressive coping is actually, it's not necessarily that great of a thing, uh, but it, it, it sort of relieves psychological distress. You just don't admit to having that, yet the underlying physiology is fairly reactive. And this reactivity in an athlete uh, can be performance uh, facilitative uh, in that you need a certain level of activation to you know, get started and get up to, uh, get up to speed, so to speak. How do you use biomarkers to study athletes' performance? And how can this help athletes perform better, play longer? Uh, every athlete I work with, and even in a clinical context, I monitor um, them psychophysiologically, routinely. So I use um, ambulatory equipment and look at primarily heart rate variability, which is an indirect uh, biomarker of brain activity, autonomic nervous system activity. And it's a strong, uh, some of these 
heart rate variability measures are strong correlates of um, the more classic biomarkers that are studied at the, sort of at the cellular level it, using imagery, imagery and, and things like that. But uh, ambulatory systems allow you to get clues as to what, what is happening. So, for example, an athlete who has the worst profile in a pre-action phase of competition, they're likely not to exhibit a known um, phenomenon called heart rate deceleration. Heart rate deceleration shouldn't be confused with mere heart rate slowing. So if you're an athlete and you have a strong activity phase, let's say a tennis player plays a point, after the point, the heart rate's going to be fairly high anyway. So it comes down naturally as a function of decreasing metabolic demands, and it goes up with metabolic demands. But there's a cognitive mediation of this phenomenon in a pre-action phase. There's a lot of research on heart rate deceleration golfers. So let's say you're standing to, to putt. As you're looking at, at the ball prior to the putt, there's all sorts of calculations going on. And a lot of that's in the left frontal hemisphere. And just prior to you deciding, okay, I'm going to putt now, you'll see a drop in all frequency, uh, EEG frequencies in that area and a massive increase in the, uh, the motor cortex area. So uh, there, it's concomitant uh, to heart rate deceleration, meaning the, the transition from this left hemispheric activity to, to motor priming. So each, each heartbeat is, even if it's at a, at a relatively high baseline, each is in that time lock period, which is sometimes no long, you know, no more than maybe five to ten heartbeats. Each one is getting successively longer, unless there's some sort of metabolic disturbance, like, you know, if I itch myself, uh, scratch myself, or something like that. And this heart rate deceleration prior to that onset almost uh, well can predict what's going to happen subsequently. So if I could, if you could see that on a screen as the person's doing his or her thing, um, you say, uh-oh, there's a, all of a sudden you see like a heart rate acceleration burst and you see the person maybe shank the, shank the drive or, or the field goal attempt, something like that. So validation. What do you hope to learn from your research or what do you hope to do with it? I, I run the American Board of Sports Psychology. So uh, in the context of our mission, our mission is to bring evidence-based procedures to the field because right now it's very eclectic sort of very wild wild west and if you were to get let's say call up 10 sports psychologists and ask for a consultation you likely would get 10 different approaches so it's very uh there's nothing standardized there's no standardized protocols other than the protocol that we've validated and we certify practitioners to go through our program and so our mission is just to bring more accountability to the process of uh, assessing athletes and consulting with athletes. Um, what are you currently working on? Could you tell us about the mental toughness app you're developing? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, there's three tests that we use to measure the, uh, the, the psychological traits and tendencies. Uh, one's, like I said, hypnotic susceptibility. And uh, the scale, usually the, the gold standard scales are the, uh, the Harvard scale of hypnotic susceptibility and the Stanford scale of, of hypnotic susceptibility. And those are behavioral tests that are used to uh, rate somebody's uh, level of hypnotic susceptibility. So it's not a questionnaire pa paper and pencil test. 
you have to actually go through stages of uh, what's done when hypnotic inductions are, are, are carried out. And on the basis of that, you get your hypnotic susceptibility score. And then an alternative test is the Telegon absorption scale, which is a uh, self-report questionnaire that correlates moderately with hypnotic susceptibility. And then the second measure, neuroticism, I guess the, 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 the most widely used neuroticism scale comes from the NEO. And uh, the third is repressive coping, which is uh, captured through the Marlowe crown, which originally was a test of social desirability, uh, but they found out it tapped this repressive coping quality more so. And so what I did was um, validated a test that attempts to tap these three measures in one battery, so it's 90 questions. And um, to date, it's in document form, and uh, it hasn't been disseminated like we'd like to see it disseminated. So we're gonna go into the app realm and uh, make it uh, easily downloadable. You can get your score, and then if you wanna follow up on that, you can get a full report. And then um, hopefully what that will do is expose the evidence-based approach uh, on a broader scale. And uh, that's, that, that sort of goes back to the mission of what we're trying to do too, because we're, you know, we're trying to get through a lot of noise that, uh, that we need to dampen a little bit and uh, bring more of the scientific approach uh, into the picture. Thank you, Dr. Carlstead. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to present on my work. Next time on Think Research. So despite the fact that we have the development of many anti-epileptic drugs, 30% of patients who suffer what is called drug-resistant epilepsy. And in this case, the most promising and best treatment uh, is the resected surgery of the area that generates the, the seizures. Dr. Christos Papadelis explains how non-invasive imaging will improve surgical outcomes for epileptic children. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.